Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on Sunday, February 24th, 2013. Today's message is, Repent and Believe, Did Jesus Mess Up John's Party? by Pastor Ryan Cochran, based on Luke 7, verses 18 through 23. Before we begin our sermon today, I wanted to give you a bit of a heads up about what our sermon's going to be on next week. Last week we began a sermon series called Repent and Believe, and we'll continue that series today, but next week we're going to kind of push the pause button on this sermon series, and next week I'm going to preach a sermon on fasting. I can tell by the look on your faces, you're all very excited about that. I've probably ensured the lowest attendance of any church service at Ebenezer Baptist by that announcement, but we are going to be teaching on fasting next week. And there's really two reasons for that. Uh, First, uh, this is the season of Lent, and fasting is a common practice in the Christian tradition uh, during the season of Lent. And I'm going to be talking about why fasting is a Christian practice and why it should be practiced not only at this time of the year, but as a regular practice in our lives. The second reason I'm going to preach on fasting next week is that the leadership would like to invite you to fast at some point over the next couple of weeks as we prepare for these discussions that we're going to have on March 9th. Throughout the scriptures, we find God's people coming together to fast during times when they want to express to God that they are serious about acknowledging their dependence on him. And so this vision process that we're going through is an important moment in our church's life, and we want to truly hear from God about where he wants us to go and what he has for us in our future. And so we want to to show him that we know we are dependent on him uh, through the practice of fasting. And so next week I'll be preaching a bit about fasting and how that relates uh, to our own personal walk with God as well as specifically uh, to this process. So I wanted to give you a heads up about that uh, so that you could be thinking about that over the next couple of weeks and so it wasn't a big surprise to you uh, next Sunday. Let's pray together as we uh, dive into God's word. God in heaven, we thank you of thank you for this story of, of John the Baptist and his sincere doubt and questions about who you are. Lord, each of us has our own doubts. Each of us has places in our heart that are cold towards you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we hear this word, as we discover how John the Baptist was called to repent and to believe, Lord, that we would do the same. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. May the Lord be with you. So we continue uh, with this sermon series on repent and believe by looking at this specific story of John the Baptist this week. Last week we looked at uh, the very first sermons that Jesus preached in his earthly ministry, and we saw that that his sermons had three points. Uh, First, the kingdom of God is near. Second, to repent. And third, to believe the good news. 
And so by way of just a very brief review of what we talked about last week, I want to just uh, summarize what we talked about, about these three points last week. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God was the idea and the hope that motivated Jesus' life and ministry. The coming reign of God is now near in Christ. The coming reign of God is now near because I am here. That is what Jesus said to his disciples, and it's what he tells us today. The kingdom of God is near because Christ is here. And Jesus' whole ministry focused on communicating this idea of the kingdom of God. He taught about the kingdom of God a lot. He usually did that through parables. And we also talked last week about how he demonstrated the kingdom of God in his ministry. He demonstrated what the kingdom was all about through the miracles that he did. And he also demonstrated the kingdom of God by this strange, unique community that he gathered around him of people from all different walks of life, people who would have hated one another before they came to Christ together, are all now following Christ around the Galilean countryside. This was a demonstration, a picture of what the kingdom of God was all about. The kingdom of God is near. That was the declaration that Christ gave to tell us that God was moving into the world to bring about his plans and purposes for all things. The kingdom of God is near. And so, because of that, we need to repent. We need to turn around, as we talked about last week. The disciples, Andrew, Simon, James, and John, and Levi, that we looked at last week, were the very first disciples who turned around. Hey, buddy, we've got a little Van Vliet up here. These disciples were the very first people who heard the message and who repented. And what we see in their example of repentance is that repentance is is not only about turning around or turning away from individual bad things that we do. I think that that's often the way that we think about repentance, that we know that we're doing this thing, we're doing this sin, and so uh, we turn around, we, we, we move away from it. But in these early stories of repentance, Certainly, repentance would have required that. But even before that, these disciples had to make a decision that their entire lives were to be reoriented around Christ. Their entire lives were to face Christ and to follow him. And as we do that, as we repent and orient our entire lives around Christ and his purposes for us, then Christ will do the work in us of taking care of these bad things, these sins that we do. But first, repentance is about this decision to face Christ and to follow him. And finally, Jesus says that we need to believe. And what we see in the examples of the early disciples is that believing is not simply hearing about some message, hearing some truth and saying, yeah, I think I agree with that in my head. What it means is that we are going to take action by placing our whole weight. Everything in our lives is going to be placed on Christ. We are to order our lives around Christ and towards this this repentance that we have done uh, in him. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So today we're going to look at a moment in John the Baptist's life where he is faced with the reality of the kingdom of God. 
and where John the Baptist is called to repent and believe. Because John the Baptist discovers, as he's hearing about Jesus' ministry, that the kingdom of God was not what he expected. John the Baptist, the great prophet, the one who was anointed by God to prepare the way for the Messiah, this great man of faith, when he encounters the invitation of the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about and that Jesus is living out, this is not what he expected. And he needs to repent and believe. If you remember a couple of months ago, uh, the week after Christmas, uh, Pastor Isaac preached a sermon titled, The Baptist is Coming to Ruin Your Party. Uh, This is a great title for a sermon right after Christmas. Uh, In that sermon, Isaac reminded us that in the early ministry of John the Baptist, that he calls us to repentance, to wake up and to realize that the incarnation of the Son of God, the fact that Jesus is now here with us in the flesh, is not only an occasion to celebrate. It's also a moment of crisis in our lives. It's a moment that calls us to, uh, to question how we're living and whether or not we will follow this one called Jesus or not. His ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was about repentance. When I was growing up and we, ever, we had a, a long car ride, I always remember really enjoying Paul Harvey. Does anyone remember Paul Harvey on the radio? Hey, there's a few of you. Uh, Paul Harvey, he was a great storyteller. Uh, That was really what Paul Harvey did so well. And and one of the things that he would do in one of his segments on the radio was to take a very famous person or to take a very famous event uh, that, that everyone knew about, and he would tell us the background of that story or would tell us everything that led up to that story or would tell us everything that happened afterwards. And at the end of his segment, he would always say, And now you know the rest of the story. Luke 7 is the rest of the story in John the Baptist's life. After the the local Galilean newspapers forgot about John, after everyone stopped talking about him, after he disappeared and was in prison, John the Baptist's life continues on. And we find out what happens in Luke chapter 7. And what we find out is that Jesus' life caused a crisis in John the Baptist's life. Jesus, in some way, ruins John's party. John has an idea about what the Messiah is going to be. John has an idea about all the reforms that need to happen in Israel at that time. He has an idea of what the kingdom of God is. And none of those things are happening in Jesus' ministry. Not a single one. And now John, the faithful prophet, has spent months in prison, and John begins to doubt. John has to face this realization that Jesus is not the Messiah that he had in mind. So as he's in prison, he begins to face all kinds of doubts about Jesus, and I think also about his own ministry. And so John calls two of his disciples to him, and he sends him to Jesus, and he has them ask Jesus this question. Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? This was the question that John asked. 
Jesus, are you really the one? Or should we be looking elsewhere for the Messiah? This is a shocking question to come from John the Baptist. It must have been a heartbreaking question for John the Baptist to ask. In John's entire life and ministry, all he did was point to Christ. John would say things like this. He would see Jesus walking down the road and he would say, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would say that he, the great prophet, wasn't even worthy to kneel down and untie the sandal of Jesus. John the Baptist said things like, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And now John asks the question, Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we start looking someplace else? Let's put ourselves in John's position for a moment. John has done nothing but be faithful to God and to his calling up to this point in his life. And now he's in prison and he has lots of times to think and he begins to doubt. As I've read through these texts this week, I, I think that there are really two sources of John's doubt, two places where John is really struggling to understand what Jesus is all about. The first one, as I've already mentioned, is that Jesus is not doing the kinds of things that John expected from a Messiah. If you look at John's ministry, John very much wanted to reform Israel's leadership. He saw them as being very corrupt, and he called them out uh, on their sin and called them out on their hypocrisy. John directly challenged the leadership of Israel. He challenged the spiritual leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are the guys that he called a brood of vipers. He sees corruption in these religious leaders, and he calls them to repent, and he warns them that the axe is at the root of the tree. And I want you to remember this image. I'm going to come back to it throughout this sermon, that John warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the axe is at the root of the tree. John believes that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to go to the root of the tree, which he believed was Israel's leadership. And he's going to cut it down. He's going to go to the root, and he's going to cut down Israel at its root and destroy the whole tree. John challenges these religious leaders in Israel. Not only does he challenge the religious leaders, he also challenges the political leaders, which is why he's in prison now in the first place. John has challenged Herod Antipas, the king at that time, because he married a woman named Herodias, who had been his brother Philip's wife. Herod Antipas and Herodias both left their spouses in order to be married together, and John saw this as... uh, a terrible thing for the king of Israel. And so he challenged them and he called them to repent. Of course, kings don't like prophets who call them to repent, and so Herod Antipas sends him to prison. Part of John's ministry that he had in mind, part of what he thought that he was to be about, was to challenge the authority of the leaders in Israel, both the religious leaders and the political leaders. He saw this as the root of the tree that needed to be chopped down. If Israel was going to be restored, then these leaders needed to be out of the way. And he thought that this was the way that he was preparing the way for the Messiah to come. 
He was calling their authority into question. He was making very obvious to all the people around that they were corrupted and sinful. Politically, he was trying to pave the way for Jesus to then come and to finish the job and to take them out. And so John couldn't understand why Jesus wasn't seeking to reform the corrupt leadership of Israel. Jesus did challenge the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he even had some words for Herod. But never once, never once, did Jesus try to remove them from their place of authority. The axe was at the root of the tree, but John was wrong about what the root of the tree was. The root of the tree that needed to be cut down was not the leadership in Israel. It was something else. So we'll get back to that. But that was the very first reason that John asked his question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect to another? Jesus wasn't doing the kinds of things that he expected from a Messiah. The second reason, I think, was very personal. The Messiah was supposed to come and set the captives free. And here's John, the most faithful captive of all. And he's been in prison for months. And Jesus does nothing about it. The kingdom of God is near. This isn't what John had in mind. So John naturally, I think, begins to wonder about who Jesus is. You can only imagine the kinds of questions that John began to think about. Why is God allowing this to happen? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I been anointed by God? Haven't I done exactly what God told me to do? I spent years in the desert, alone, praying to God, seeking to only listen to him. And now why is this happening to me? He was a man of faith, a man who believed in God and tried to do everything that God called him to do. So now that he's done it, why is he in prison? I think that may have been one of the lines of questioning that's going on in John's mind. But I think there's also another one, maybe an even more likely scenario from what we know of John. I wonder if John began to wonder if he had been wrong about Jesus all along. And I think that's what begins to break John's heart. There were lots of false messiahs running around Galilee at this time. And I wonder if John began to think that maybe he pointed people to the wrong one. Maybe I didn't hear God. Maybe I pointed people the wrong way and now I'm in prison and this is God's judgment on my life. I don't think John was surprised that he was going through suffering. Uh, he was a man who was very well acquainted with suffering. He disciplined himself very intentionally to be prepared for suffering. I don't think it surprised him that he ended up in prison. And so while I think that may have been a question for him why he was there, but really I think the thing that really bothered John, the thing that really broke his heart, was this question of whether or not Jesus was actually the one. That whether or not his whole life in ministry had been a sham because he pointed to the wrong Messiah. Maybe he had made level the wrong road. Maybe all that work was for nothing. In fact, had led people the wrong way. And so John, as he has these doubts, he has to know, Jesus, are you the one? Or 
Is there someone else that we need to start looking for? You can only imagine John's entire life being lived so that he could see this Messiah come and do the things that he hoped for, and now none of it is happening. You can imagine the despair, the hopelessness that would cause him then to ask the question, Jesus, are you even the one at all? Jesus was not the Messiah that John was expecting. In some ways, we see that Jesus may have been a disappointment to John. And so Jesus was not the Messiah that John wanted, but John will discover that Jesus is the Messiah that he needed, even if he was not the one that he wanted. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior that all of us need, even if he's not the one that we want. Jesus' response to John's question is so gracious and so loving. He doesn't rebuke John for his doubt. He doesn't get angry. He simply tells John's disciples to go back and tell John the stories about his ministry. Tell him about how the lame are walking and the blind are seeing and the dead are being raised to life. Go back and tell these stories. Tell him not to fall away to not give up. What John had to discover, what John had to learn was that he was wrong. But he wasn't wrong about Jesus being the Messiah. He was wrong about the root of the tree that the Messiah had come to chop down. The root of the tree was not the corrupt religious leadership of the Pharisees and Sadducees, The root of the tree was not the immoral and treacherous leadership of Herod. The root of the tree that needed to be chopped down is the rebellious heart of every human being. The rebellious human heart of every human being that refuses to submit to the authority of God. This is the root of the tree that Christ came to chop down. The kingdom of God is not about religious authority or about, a political, about political authority, at least not at first. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is within you. The kingdom of God is hidden in the heart of the one who submits to Christ as Lord. The kingdom of God is within the one who has received a new heart from God, the one who has been healed of their rebelliousness against their creator and has been given a new heart of love for God. John was wrong, not about Jesus being the Messiah. He was wrong about where the axe needed to do the work. John thought that the axe was going to be directed at these leaders in Israel, and that Israel could be purified by getting rid of them. Instead, the axe was and still is directed at every human heart that rebels against God. And John had to learn even his own heart even his own heart. This has been the problem from the very beginning. Adam and Eve's sin was a failure failure to submit to the rule of God in their lives. And ever since, God has been at work to call people to turn away from being their own Lord, their own authority, and turn to him as king. Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. 
The kingdom of God is here and it is coming and it begins with the repentance of the human heart that turns away from themselves and turns to God. Jesus redefines what it means to be the Messiah. We find in this story that even John the Baptist, the great John the Baptist, his own assumptions and hopes about what the Messiah would be needed to be challenged and corrected. Later in this story, we see this is why Jesus says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than him. Jesus says this because at this point, John himself had not yet believed and repented. John himself had not yet come to know that the axe at the root of the tree was directed even toward his own heart. The one who is least in the kingdom of God. The one who is least in the kingdom of God know that the real work that needs to be done is in our own heart, not someplace else. The salvation that Jesus brings goes much deeper than addressing the outward expressions of evil in our world. The salvation that Jesus brings goes to the core of the problem, which is our rebellion against our Creator and Lord. This rebellion is the source of the evil and wickedness that we can see with our eyes. And this is the root that Christ came to chop down. I want to suggest to you that this is the reason that in Jesus' life, this vision of the kingdom of God is what leads him all the way to the cross, leads him to suffer and to die. The kingdom of God cannot simply come by him grabbing on to the reins of earthly power. The kingdom of God had to come through suffering, had to come through the cross. Why is that? Well, I want you to continue to think about this image of the axe at the root of the tree. If Jesus had come and had simply overthrown the earthly powers and had established new ones, I want to suggest he simply would have been chopping off branches. He would have been doing some pruning on the tree, which may have looked good for a little while but the tree would have still been corrupted because the root of the problem, the cause of the corruption of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and of King Herod was their own rebellion in their own hearts against God. And so God's solution for this rebellion was for God to send his own son to suffer and die for us even when we were his enemies so that as we look to the cross, our hearts begin to be softened to God's love for us. He died for us so that our hearts could be changed. And I want to suggest to you today that the cross of Christ does two things for us. We know, we know that in the cross of Christ we find forgiveness. But what I want to suggest to you today is that the cross of Christ even does something before that. Before that, as we imagine the cross and as we know the cross as the place where Christ's hands were nailed, the cross, we see the love of God the Father for us. And as we see the love of God the Father for us, our hearts begin to be soft toward him. We have rebelled against him. Our hearts are hard towards him. And the cross is the place where we see 
the love of God the Father for us and when our hearts become soft to him. And it's only when we are open to that, it's only when we are open to that that we then can kneel before the cross and receive the forgiveness of the Son. We have to receive this vision of the cross that is the image, the picture of the great love of God for us, even when we were Christ's enemies. The axe, the axe is going to the root of the tree, and the root is our own hearts. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that your love for us was so great that you did not spare your only son, but gave him for us. Lord, I pray that this truth, that this great sacrifice of your love for us, Lord, would soften our hearts to you. Lord, that it would open our hearts to you so that we may receive all that you have for us. Forgiveness, righteousness, holiness, the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's stand at this time and sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us.